Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you again this morning. Thank you for this time of celebration, this time we continue in the Advent season. Bless us, may you use your word even now to speak to us, and we commit this time to you. Move me out of the way, may your Holy Spirit work even now. We pray this all in your name, Jesus. Amen. Today is the third week of Advent, and we return again to the passage we looked at last week in Luke 2, 8 through 14, on the birth of Christ. And let's turn to that passage again and read it again. Luke 2, 8 through 14. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. For those who were not here last week, here's a quick recap we talked about the region, which Luke talks about, which was Bethlehem, which was a very small town or village about six miles south of Jerusalem. Bethlehem was considered to be somewhat insignificant. As I was reading in one of my Advent readings this week, one of the authors said this about Bethlehem. Bethlehem reminds us that in God's economy, the small shall become great, and the last shall be first. We talked about the shepherds and how they were regarded as the lowest on the totem pole and how they were uneducated and despised by most in society because they essentially had to work seven days a week and were not off on the Sabbath and would have violated all of the man-made Sabbath laws. We talked about how shepherding was essentially a job that children had because it did not require many skills. So the shepherds were out keeping watch over their flocks by night. So they could have been still in the field with their flocks or they could have gathered them into the sheepfold. And remember how we talked about how the shepherd would literally lay his mat down at the entrance of the sheepfold and lay down and would be sure that no sheep would escape because the sheep would have to walk over him 
to get out of the sheepfold. And that is why Jesus called himself the door of the sheep in John 10, 7. I am sure that all of you are very familiar with the TV Christmas cartoon, A Charlie Brown Christmas. It is probably one of my favorite Christmas specials. To my understanding, unfortunately, it no longer comes on local TV stations as of 2020. At the start of the cartoon, Charlie Brown is looking in his mailbox to see if anyone has sent him a Christmas card and, and complains because no one has sent him a Christmas card. Just a little bit about Christmas cards. The Christmas card first originated with Sir Henry Cole in England. Cole was a very well-respected businessman in England and wore various hats and had lots of responsibilities. One Christmas in December in 1843, Cole's mailbox, unlike Charlie Brown's, was jam-packed with holiday letters from his friends and associates. Cole was so bogged down with all of his other obligations he had and felt that he would hurt people's feelings by not responding to their letters. So one day, while he was at his desk, he took a rigid piece of paper and folded it in a way that was like a book. He remembered that when he was in grade school, his teacher had given them an assignment to draw pictures on some paper like this to give to their parents as a gift. He recalled that some of the pictures that his classmates drew were of birds, flowers, and biblical scenes. So Cole went to his friend who was an artist and asked him to draw a scene of a family celebrating Christmas. And in the card was written, a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to you. The printer printed about 1,000 cards. The, the response was not what was expected because many people despised the scene of, on the card that had people holding up glasses during a toast. It reminded them of the Christmas celebrations with the drunkenness of the past. Americans did not embrace Christmas cards until after the American Civil War. It wasn't until the 20th century that card printers started printing religious scenes on cards, such as the nativity, shepherds, wise men, and angels. In a Charlie Brown Christmas, Charlie Brown is essentially trying to find out what Christmas is all about. At one point, he goes to Lucy, who is supposed to help him with his problem. And Charlie Brown says he feels depressed when he knows he should be happy, but he is not. And that is the way many people feel during this time of the year. Charlie Brown goes on to say he does not understand Christmas and says instead of feeling happy, he feels a little sort of let down. Lucy tells Charlie Brown he needs involvement and suggests that he become the director of their Christmas play. 
Charlie Brown becomes the director of the play. Charlie Brown suggests that there should be a proper mood and says they need a Christmas tree. So he and Linus go out to find a tree. He says, Charlie Brown decides on a little green tree. So when he brings the tree back, everyone starts laughing at him. And Charlie Brown says, I guess you were right, Linus. I shouldn't have picked this little tree. Thus comes the Charlie Brown tree. He says, everything I do turns into a disaster. And he says, I guess I really don't know what Christmas is all about. Then he asks the question, isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? Linus says, sure, Charlie Brown, I can tell you what Christmas is all about. Linus says, lights, please, and the spotlight hits Linus. And Linus says in the King James Version, which I like a lot, this passage, and it says, and there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping their watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were sore afraid. That's the part I like. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all the people, to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Then Linus says to Charlie Brown, That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. At the end, the characters are seen gathered around singing the curl, Hark the Herald, Angels Sing. Charles Wesley wrote this carol. Wesley was the youngest of 18 children. Wesley was educated at Oxford, but returned to London and almost immediately started making waves. His way of ministering was different from most of the preachers in England. And believe it or not, this is what caused a stir. He visited prisons. Doesn't seem particularly odd to me. He sometimes had church services outside and believed that Christian music should involve enthusiasm and energy from the parishioner. None of this seems out of the ordinary to me. In 1737, Wesley was working on a new Christmas composition, he wrote down the line, Hark how all the welkin rings, glory to the king of kings. Welkin, W-E-L-K-I-N, is not a word that we hear today. Welkin actually means the vault of heaven makes a loud noise. 
In essence, this is saying when heaven sends forth the loud announcement, all the power of the king is shown. The song became known as Hark How All the Welkin Rings. George Whitfield was one was an old college buddy of Wesley. However, Whitfield was not as educated as Wesley. He was more charismatic and did not interpret scripture very literally and was more liberal. Whitfield published Wesley's song and took the liberty to change the words without consulting Wesley and change the words to what we know of today as Hark the Herald Angels Sing. When Wesley saw his song published this way, he was outraged. Nowhere in the Bible did the angels sing about Christ's birth. Luke says in Luke 2.13, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and what? Saying. There are really only two times in the Bible where it says that the angels sang. One is found in Job 38.7, which says, When the morning stars sang together and, and all the sons of God shouted for joy, Morning stars here refers to angels. The other place is in Revelation 5, 8 through 10, which says, When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break his seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your, with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. As I mentioned, Wesley was so infuriated by the change to the line in his song that for the rest of his 70 years, he never sang Whitfield's change to the words of his song. The song was taken by William Cummins, who sang for Felix Mendelssohn, the famous composer. Cummins' arrangement of Heart the Herald, Angel Sing, was first printed in the Methodist Hymnal in 1857. Regardless of what you may think of the title of the carol, there is so much theology in the carol. It starts off, Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. And the second verse says, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time behold him come offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. 
Hark the herald angel sings, glory to the newborn king. And the third verse says, hail the heaven born, prince of peace, hail the son of righteousness, light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Now back to our text in Luke 2 verse 9 which says, and an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terribly frightened. What you have to understand is that this would have been a night like every other night and the shepherds would have been doing what they had been doing for so many nights before and that was none other than watching and keeping their sheep. There had been no appearances of angels for some 500 years we don't know exactly which angel it was who appeared to them. It could very well have been Gabriel since he had appeared earlier to Zacharias and Mary in Luke 1. Luke says the glory of the Lord shone around, around, around them. The glory of the Lord is seen all throughout the scriptures. In Exodus 24, 17, Moses says, and to the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. In Deuteronomy 5.24, Moses says, when he interceded on behalf of the children of Israel, you said, behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and his greatness, and we have heard his voice from the midst of the fire. We have seen today that God speaks with man, yet he lives. When Ezekiel saw the glory of the Lord in Ezekiel 1, 27 and 28, this is what he said. Then I noticed from the appearance of his loins and upwards something like glowing metal that looked like fire all around within it. And from the appearance of his loins and downward, I saw something like fire. And there was a radiance around him as the appearance of the rainbow and clouds on a rainy day. So was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and heard a voice speaking. The glory of the Lord was seen at the dedication of the tabernacle in Exodus 40, 34 through 35, where Moses says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. After years of sin and rebellion, the glory of the Lord left the temple. In Ezekiel 10, 18-19, speaking of the glory of the Lord departing, Ezekiel says, Then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. When the cherubim departed, they lifted their wings and rose up from the earth in my sight with the wheels beside them. And they stood still at the entrance of the east gate of the Lord's house, and the glory of the God of Israel hovered over them. Ezekiel eleven twenty-two 
22 through 23, Ezekiel says, Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel hovered over them. The glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood over the mountain, which is east of the city. Beloved, all of this signifies the glory leaving Israel. This was very, very significant because for 400 plus years, the glory of the Lord had been absent. And it did not appear again until this night. The night when Christ was born. This was special because this time God was not coming in a cloud. He was not coming in a tabernacle. He was not coming in a tent. He was not coming in a temple. But God was coming as a baby in human flesh. The glory of the Lord. The next time the glory of the Lord will be seen will be when Christ comes during his second coming. The Bible says in Matthew 24, 30, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. So Luke said the shepherds were terribly frightened, or as the authorized says, Sore afraid. You think? So to say the least, they were terribly frightened. Remember Daniel in Daniel 8, 15 through 18, when an angel appeared to him, this is what it said of Daniel. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, standing before me was one who looked like a man. And I heard the voice of a man between the banks of Uli. And he called out and said, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. So he came near to where I was standing. And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, son of man, understand that the vision pertains to the time of the end. And if you turn back in Luke 1, verse 12, speaking of Zacharias. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel and fear gripped him. The angel saw that shepherds was, were frightened. So he said to them, what? Do not what? Do not be afraid. The shepherds had no reason for fear. Because the angel had come to bring what? Good news. His message was the same as what John said in 1 John 4.14 when he said, We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Luke loves to use the phrase good news and uses it more than any other gospel writer. 
In Luke 1.19, he says, the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this, what? Good news. In Acts 8.12, he writes, but when they believed, Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Acts 13.32, and we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers. Yes, it is good news that we have a Savior who has come to save us and to take away our sins. It is good news, no doubt, that we have a Savior who has forgiven us of all of our past sins, our present sins, and even our future sins. That is a reason to have great what? Joy and joy unspeakable. One of my favorite of all Christmas verses is Matthew 121. And this is what it says. The angel was speaking to Joseph and said, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. For it is he who will save his people from their sins. Jesus is from the Hebrew word Joshua or Yeshua and means Jehovah will save. Jesus' name was a testament to God's salvation. In other words, the angel was telling Joseph that Jesus would be the very embodiment of God's salvation. It would be Jesus who would save people from their sins. After Jesus had risen from the dead, Peter was speaking before the Sanhedrin and spoke about the importance of Jesus' name and said in Acts 4.12, another one of my favorite verses where he says, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. This totally debunks the idea of those who say that there are many ways to God. Friends, let me say it the best way I can. There is only one way to God, and that is through the person of Jesus Christ. It does not matter how religious you may be during this Christmas season, and it doesn't matter how many church services you may attend. There is no philosophy or no amount of good deeds that can gain you salvation. There is only one and just one name by which one can be saved, and that is the name of Jesus. Jesus is Emmanuel. God with us. And the one who came to save people from their what? Sins. The fact of the matter is that Jesus was born to die. One commentator says it this way. On that very first Christmas, earth was oblivious to all that was happening. But heaven wasn't. The holy angels were waiting in anticipation to break forth in praise and worship and adoration at the birth of the newborn child. The child's birth meant deliverance for mankind. The angel told Joseph, it is he who will save his people from their sins. Jesus knew that to do that, he would have to die. He goes on to say, I envision a farewell that I think must have taken place in heaven on the first Christmas Eve. I imagine the son might have said goodbye 
to the Father, and the Father to the Son. In fact, I'm sure it happened because the Son's goodbye message is recorded in Hebrews 10, 5 through 7. When he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering thou hast not desired, but a body thou hast prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do thy will, O God. This speaks so much of what Jesus' mission was going to be on the earth even before he was born. He knew that when he came into this sin-sick world that he was coming to be the ultimate and final sacrifice for sin. His very body had been made by God for that very purpose. Jesus knew from the very beginning that he would have to die for the sins of the world for those who believe. The wonderful part of all of it is that he did it willingly, and that is at the very heart of the incarnation. At the very center of Christmas, it's not so much about the fact that Jesus came. It is more about the reason that he came. No salvation was given in the fact that he was born. Even the fact that he lived a sinless life, his entire life, but this in and of itself, did not have any redeeming power. This could not rescue men from their sins. Even his teachings could not save from sin. Beloved, he had to die. Only Jesus could do that. We know that he came to show to all men that he was God. We know that he came to teach the truth. We know that he came to fulfill the law. We know that he came to show us how to live. We know that he came to reveal to us God's love. We know that he came to bring peace. We know that he came to heal the sick. We know that he came to help the poor and needy. But all of those, these things that Jesus did was not the ultimate reason that he came. The fact of the matter is that Jesus could have done all of these things without ever being born. Because he could have come in the form of an angel, as oftentimes would happen in the Old Testament, and could have done those things. Friends, he had to come in the form of a human to die. A commentator put it this way. Here's a side to the Christmas story that isn't often told. Those soft little hands fashioned by the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb were made so that nails might be driven through them. Those baby feet, pink and unable to walk, would one day walk up a dusty hill to be nailed to a cross. That sweet infant's head with sparkling eyes and eager mouth was formed so that someday men might force a crown of thorns unto it. That tender, warm, and soft Jesus was born to die. It is the cross above the cradle. In Hebrews 2.9, the writer of Hebrews says, But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, 
crown with glory and honor so that by grace of by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone Jesus was our substitute why did he become lord than the angels he did this just for a while so that he could die if you remember when we talked about angels in our study on heaven angels are not mortal and do not die. Death is for mortals. Dear friends, Jesus died for you, and he died for me. What you have to understand is that he died a death of torture and agony. He drank the bitter cup when he went to Calvary, and he drank it all without anything to relieve his pain. He took the death that was really the payment for our sin. He took the full punishment of God's wrath for sin. He paid it all, dear friends, and rose victoriously and conquered sin and death. Death was never God's plan from the beginning. It was part of the curse. Jesus was born without sin and never sinned and could not sin. He was not guilty. We were. One pastor said it this way. The sinless one took the sin of the entire world. The one who is life itself died. The perfect one became the punished one. He paid the price of our sin and made our redemption possible. Jesus paid a debt he did not owe. We owed a debt we could not pay. He gave us his grace, mercy, and love. It is his sovereign hand that chose us and called us to himself. Instead of giving us justice what we deserve, he gave us his amazing grace that we did not deserve. What love, what mercy, what grace. The one who is the just one and the justifier. Jesus sanctified us and paid our sins in full, and they can never again be brought up against us. That in and of itself should be enough to make you shout with great joy. And back to our passage in Luke and in verse 10 at the end of verse 10 Luke says that the good news will be for how many people all all people after Simeon had seen baby Jesus in the temple he said in Luke 2 30-32 for my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared in the presence of all the peoples a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel if you look at the word people in verse 10, it is singular. But in Luke 2:32, it is plural and it refers to forgiveness that is for all people. And Jesus says in the great commission in Matthew 28:19 that we are to make disciples of how many nations? All the nations. So the good news is for all the nations. Oftentimes, around this time of the year, we may hear expressions that Jesus is the reason for what? The season. Or we see signs in people's yards with this message. He truly is the reason for the season, but what concerns me is that many in the church truly do not keep Jesus as the center of their celebrations. Many get caught up in the frenzy of shopping and gifts and all of the commercialism that come with it and really do not keep or celebrate Christ as the center of their celebration. Babies are so very precious, are they not? 
And during this season, our minds turned toward the baby in the manger. I will never forget hearing about this story. Many years ago, there was a story told about a wealthy Boston family. This young couple was going to have their little baby christened on a Sunday morning. And on the Saturday evening before the Sunday when the christening was to take place, they decided to invite some of their friends into their home for a party to celebrate the blessed event that would take place in church on the following morning. It was a cold winter day, and as the guests started to arrive, they were greeted by the husband and wife, who were the parents of the child who was going to be christened. The couples continued to come in. All the guests arrived at around the same time. After they had been chatting for a little bit, the couple was very excited to show off the baby, so about a half an hour into the party, the mother left the room to go into the bedroom to get the baby. And in a moment, the guests heard a horrifying scream. <gasps> the mother had gone into the bedroom and discovered that the coats and scars had been thrown on the bed where she had put the little baby. Evidently, the first person who threw their coat on the bed did not notice that the baby was there, and everyone else followed suit. Within a matter of minutes, the baby was smothered at his own party. Very sad, very tragic story. Yet I fear that many have done the same thing with Jesus. The celebration of his birthday is really supposed to have him at the center of it all. But sadly, many times, he has been smothered by all of the trappings that is characteristic of those in the world. This would be a good day, a good time to evaluate how you celebrate Christmas and to afresh and anew make sure that he is truly at the heart of your Christmas and the true reason for the season. Lord willing, we will finish this passage on Christmas Day. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you so much for this time and this season. And help us to examine our own hearts and our lives even now as we think about the great celebration of your birthday and what it means and what it even meant to the world and so many years ago that you came and burst forth and brought glory again into the world. God coming in human flesh. The reason you came was to die 
You knew that was your purpose from the very beginning. You came to bring good news, not to just one or two, but to all the peoples, all the nations. And as people are open even now to possibly hearing the good news, may you help us to be able to give that good news as opportunities present themselves. We bless you. We love you. We adore you. And we declare, as the angel said, and you will call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. And it, and it is in that blessed, precious name that we pray, the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.